are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I'm going to be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It was a sight that nobody ever wants to see. Uh, I was driving home after an evening meeting at church a few weeks ago. It was dark. Uh, I had almost gotten home when I saw it the red and blue lights flashing in my rearview mirror. And they weren't passing me. They were coming up behind me and staying next to me. So all of a sudden, oh, no, what did I do wrong? And I looked down, and I'm like, I I don't think I was doing anything wrong. I I was driving the speed limit or a close approximation to it. And you start figuring out, what what is this about? And, oh, my gosh, what is the policeman going to say? And, oh, man, do I have the most current insurance card in the glove compartment? Is, is, am I in trouble? Is he going to yell at me? And, and as it turned out, uh, the policeman had pulled me over because I had uh, a rear taillight out. And then when he had run the plates, it turned out my tags had expired just like within the last month. And I didn't know either of those things, right? And uh, as they say, though, ignorance of the law is no defense. So I was guilty, but the policeman was very nice and took pity on me and let me off with uh, just a warning, but my heart rate was still going like this, you know, by by the time I got home. You guys ever had an experience like that? I mean, there's something, not just about uh, policemen, but, but there's something about just those encounters with authority figures, right? Like, especially if we suspect maybe we've done something wrong. Whose heart is warmed by you know, encountering an authority figure. There, there's something about authority that, that when we hear it, it's not always a happy association, right? Like, nobody wants to hear the voice on the PA at school saying, like, Jeff Schultz, report to the principal's office. Uh, nobody's parents or boss, like, calls you in for a private conversation because you've been doing a great job, you know, and they, and they just want to thank and encourage you. And most of us, even culturally, because we're Americans, we have almost like this allergic reaction to authority, right? I mean, the the whole heart of our culture is independence and and don't tread on me. I mean, our, our country basically was birthed by a bunch of teenagers yelling at their parents, I hate you, you're the worst, and sailing across the ocean and saying, we'll set up our own country and nobody's going to tell us what to do, right? That's, that's just us. So we tend to think that 
uh, we're suspicious of authority and that encountering authority means somebody wants to control us or somebody wants to condemn us in some way. I mean, why do, why do we put off going to the doctor? I mean, for guys, mostly it's because we're stubborn. And, and, but we don't want to hear this authority figure say, hey, you really need to cut back on the bacon and it wouldn't hurt you to exercise a little, right? And we don't go to the dentist because we already know what they're going to say. You need to floss more. So there's this thing about authority that we struggle with. And yet, in this passage, Jesus is showing us a totally different kind of authority. Jesus has an authority where when I see it, when I understand it, I actually want it. It draws my heart to him. I I want to actually submit to this authority because Jesus uses his authority to heal and transform. That's what this passage is showing us. Jesus uses his authority to heal and transform. Uh, If you haven't already, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, pull it up on your phone, or if you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, it's page 967. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and you remember back in chapter 4, Jesus opens up this scroll of the prophet Isaiah and and, uh, announces that he's going to come and bring about God's kingdom, that that God is actually going to rescue and restore and fix everything that's gone wrong in the world, and it's going to happen through Jesus. And, and then we saw Jesus as a teacher in chapters 5 and 6 and 7, how, how wise he is and the insight he has to help us find life that's, that's actually good for us. And then in chapter 8, we see Jesus as the compassionate healer who, who reaches out to care for people and, and a surprising Jesus who welcomes in outsiders like this Roman centurion. And then last week, Pastor Nathan did a great job taking us through the the end of chapter 8 and uh, Jesus as the one with power, who has has power over chaotic forces of evil and and the sea and nature. I love wise Jesus and brilliant Jesus and merciful Jesus and kind and welcoming Jesus, but now here is a whole story that is setting up Jesus as an authority figure because that comes out real clearly as we're going to see in the text. And that sets me back a little. But Jesus uses his authority for good, to heal and transform. So let's dive into the story and, and see, see that together. Matthew chapter 9, the background is, uh, again, remember Jesus has just delivered uh, some guys over on the other side of the lake from possession being controlled by these evil spirits and the people there are so taken aback and, uh, and, and there's some economic costs associated with this. They just say, go away. And, and so Jesus gets into a boat and he crosses over the, the lake and comes to his own city. That's Capernaum, the, the center of his kind of ministry and outreach. And Verse 2, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus saw their faith, and he responds to them. And and we're going to stop here. What what is it that Jesus notices? What does he see? He sees their faith. It's kind of interesting. We don't talk about faith that way. We don't think about faith like that, right? Like for us, faith is just something we believe. It kind of lives in our heads. Jesus sees four guys carrying their friend who can't walk. He's looking at their actions. And Matthew, the narrator, says Jesus sees their faith. 
and responds to it. There's, there's something in the mindset of these guys that leads them to action, and that's what faith is. There's, there's five of them, the four guys who are carrying him and, and the paralyzed guy, like there's no indication he's fighting back, right? Like they're not like dragging him against his will. And all of them recognize there's something wrong. And I need to get in front of Jesus because he's the only one that can make this right. He's the person that I need to see to deal with this thing that's going on because Jesus has the authority to heal and transform. That's what faith is in this story, and that, that's part of how we need to fit how we understand faith into kind of our mental landscape. It has something to do with what they believe about Jesus that actually results in action. In the world of the Bible, if you, if you want to know what you believe, you, you don't have to pay much attention to what you say you believe because that changes, right? Like it can change with mood, it can change with the, the people we're around, it can change based on who we're looking to impress. Don't look at how strong you feel about your beliefs either. If you want to know what you actually believe, the Bible is saying, look at what you do. And it'll tell you the truth about what you really believe about God and about yourself and about other people and about the world. So Jesus looks at this man and their actions show that they believe, they have faith that only Jesus can do something for their friend. And notice whose faith Jesus is looking at. Did you catch that little detail? He doesn't just see the man's faith. He sees their faith. That's kind of interesting, right? There's another layer here that we could call this man is... So this is a reflection of a community of faith, right? That's why we emphasize the importance of community here at Faith Church. Because we have this conviction that following Jesus, that that growing in knowing him, that living out the implications of, uh, of understanding Jesus, it's impossible to do on your own. This man literally does not have the ability to get himself in front of Jesus. He needs other people to carry him, to, to support him, to get where he needs to be. A month or so ago, we commissioned our Stephen ministers, this group of trained lay people who come alongside one another here at Faith Church as we're going through difficult times. But, but whether it's formal lay ministers or just the care ministry at Faith in general, we all need people who can come alongside us, who will listen and encourage and, and pray and support us and, uh, and help us believe and, and encourage us through difficulty. Because, you know, there, there are times that I I may have faith in Jesus, but I'm not motivated. I'm not inspired to get where I need to get or to do what I need to do. And I need other people that can encourage me and help me along in that path. Sometimes it's somebody else's faith in Jesus that helps me move forward to where I need to go. You you may at times feel like, do I really believe what I'm singing here on Sunday morning? Or, man, I'm I'm not even sure I want to be here on Sunday morning. I don't know if I, if I, do I really believe this thing that I'm reading in God's word? Lean on other people. That's why we have brothers and sisters in the faith. Let them carry you to, to where you need to be. That, that's why we look out for one another. We bear one another's burdens. We encourage one another. That's what these guys are, are modeling here. 
You need other followers of Jesus in your life because you can't do it on your own. Your faith won't be sufficient all the time. So Jesus sees their faith, the faith of all of these people, and look what he says to this guy in verse 2. He says, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, then the story moves on to the response of the religious leaders, but let's just pause here for a minute, okay? Let's put yourself in the scene. Imagine that, that uh, the, the four friends come in, they set this paralyzed man down in front of Jesus, and he says, my child, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're the guy laying on the bed, what is your response? I mean, like, the, the, not the religious response. What are you really feeling? Like, uh, thank you, I guess. That's great. I mean, it's good to, to say my sins are forgiven, but uh, Jesus, I came here with a broken body. And number two, I mean, if we're really talking about sins, I mean, maybe you want to talk to Simon over there or Carl or Susan because, you know, they've got more problems than I do. I mean, what, what is, what's going on here? Why this statement when the man's obviously coming here paralyzed and Jesus says your sins are forgiven? Well, some people read this story and take it to mean, well, Jesus is clearly saying that this man's soul is more important than his body, and that's what we should care about. Or maybe it's only after dealing with this spiritual reality that, that now Jesus thinks it's worth addressing his physical brokenness. Or maybe Jesus is implying or suggesting that this man's paralysis is because of some sin in his life, that, that he needs to address before he can heal him. What is, what is going on here? Well, one thing to recognize is that us as uh, Westerners living, living in an advanced, you know, technocratic uh, civilization, we have tended to disconnect uh, any relationship between our bodies and kind of our, our lives, our thoughts and beliefs and attitudes. Somehow we think that you know, our mental, emotional, spiritual health doesn't really relate to our physical actions. Like, they're, they're separate realms. And the Scripture actually talks about the relationship between sin and sickness and health in a, in a complex, nuanced way. For example, there's stories in the Bible like Miriam, Moses' sister. Remember that? At a, at a key moment in the Exodus, Miriam kind of leads this rebellion against her brother Moses and says, you're doing a horrible job. And she's encouraging people to distrust God and, and the prophet that he's put up as his leader in front of the people. And God strikes Miriam with a skin disease. And, and she's horrified and she's convicted and she confesses and repents and Moses prays for her and she's healed. She gets sick immediately because of a sinful, stupid choice she made. There's other passages like Psalm 32 where the psalmist is reflecting on how he had this sin that he knew was wrong, but he hadn't really talked to anyone about it. He hadn't confessed it, and it was like this burden that was weighing down on him, the anxiety and the stress, and it led to sleeplessness and worry, and it had a, it had a physical impact on his body, not because God was directly punishing him, but that was just sort of the natural consequences of not dealing with what he needed to address. And then Job is a whole book of the Bible where an innocent guy loses everything, his health, his money, his family, through no fault of his own. And, and really one of the major points of the book is that just because someone is suffering does not mean that they've done anything wrong. So 
we cannot assume that when our bodies break down or when things aren't going the right way or, or when there's pain or suffering or difficult that, that we've done something wrong or that God is punishing us or he's disappointed or displeased with us. I mean, we need to be clear about that. The, the Bible recognizes the complexity of human behavior and the effects of our moral decisions, and there's a whole host of interconnected realities and explanations. But, of course, we want to know why, right? Why is this happening, or why is this not happening? Why is God not answering that prayer? What happened? What went wrong? You know, it reminds me of the other story that we read of in John's Gospel, where Jesus and his disciples come across this man born blind, and what do the disciples ask? Hey, whose fault is it? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? Who, who did something wrong that this guy is suffering? And Jesus says, that's the wrong question. That's totally the wrong starting point. The point is that going through suffering, having some brokenness, having some difficulty creates a reality where when we bring that to Jesus in faith, that all of a sudden he has a chance to heal and transform and do the work that he needs to do when we bring that to him in faith. That, that experience of hardship or pain or difficulty can be a display of God's mercy and grace to heal us, to change us immediately, or also to transform us whether our body is healed or whether God does something else. So then why does Jesus say this first? Jesus always has insight into what people need to hear, and he's always saying what goes to the heart of what's inside them. And Jesus knows that this guy lives in a culture where people like Jesus' own disciples are going to ask, what did that guy do wrong? How did he sin or his parents sin to make this happen? And he lives in a culture where everyone sees his paralysis and says, man, God must really be upset with this guy after all these years. And, and how would you not to start to believe that after years and years go by? Right? Like, just think how that would sink down into you. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care. God is upset with me somehow. I'm in this mess and my body's like this because God has pulled back from me. And do you see what Jesus is doing here? There's something going on in this man where this is what he needs to hear. Jesus knows, I think, that if he were to heal this man's body without addressing this cultural assumption that this man lives in, he will not have actually fully healed and transformed him. It's not that this, it's not that Jesus thinks that spirit is more important than body or that this man needs to be forgiven in order to be healed. It's that this man needs to know first and foremost that God is not angry with him simply because he's got something wrong in his life. That he's not being punished. Look at, look at how Jesus addresses him. These are tender, gentle words. Little one, don't be afraid. Your sins are forgiven. You hear how compassionate and, and personal Jesus is. He, he uses a word here that little, literally means like boy or child. And, and when we see God's authority extending out in that way through compassion and kindness and gentleness... 
it, it changes our view of what God's authority is like. God doesn't stand off at a distance. He doesn't point a finger and condemn. He moves towards us and he says what we need to hear. Because Jesus uses his authority to heal and to transform. But that's also a dangerous thing to assert in Jesus' culture, to say your sins are forgiven and God's not upset with you. Look at at the response of the scribes in verse 3. We could think of them as kind of, you know, their Bible teachers or, or, you know, maybe the Christian podcasters who are always looking for somebody whose theology doesn't line up 100% with them and they're going to sniff out anything that doesn't, you know, smell exactly right. They talk amongst themselves saying, this man is blaspheming. Now, Jesus said two things, right? What did he say? Little child, little one, don't be afraid. Okay, probably not blasphemy. I hope not, because then most of us as parents are in trouble. Uh, Secondly, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's it. Bingo. Because what Jesus says is blasphemous given their cultural religious context. And and you may get that, but for others of us, we need to connect the dots, okay? So in Jesus' day, how do you know that you're forgiven for your sins? Well, Psalm 32, you you can pray for forgiveness. That's great. That's a good place to start, but you actually have to do something. You have to go to the temple in Jerusalem where God's holy presence dwells. That's the meeting place of God and man and, and where God can extend forgiveness. You, you bring an offering to the priest. You confess your sins over it. The animal is sacrificed in your place. And as you see its blood pour out, it's this visceral image, this reminder that my sin caused that death. But... But God is gracious, and he will accept a spotless substitute in my place. And the priest says, your sins are forgiven. So do you see the problem here? Jesus is not a priest. He's not at the temple. He's up in Galilee. And he's saying what the priest would say. Jesus simply asserts his authority with no appeal to anything else to say, I can forgive sins, and I do forgive you. Do you see what a uh, kind of a problem Jesus is creating here? Again, in our neighborhood, we have uh, a lot of dogs. And uh, sometimes dog owners don't always pick up after their dogs. Uh, sometimes when they're out walking them or maybe the dogs get loose. So that can create a little problem and a little tension at times, right? Like when I'm out trying to mow the lawn, I'm like, oh, got to stop and take care of that. So assume... Uh, a scenario where my neighbor has a dog, the dog gets out and comes across the street and leaves a mess in the other neighbor's yard, okay? And these two neighbors are out kind of going at it. And I step into the middle of that situation and I say, hey, hey, it's okay. Your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Right? Like, what is that guy going to say? Who do you think you are? What does this have to do with you? Go back inside and mind your own business. We're dealing with this ourselves. This is, this is this paralyzed man, and there's God, and Jesus puts himself in between the two of them and says, I am the bridge that can connect them and bring God's forgiveness and assure you that your sins are taken care of. As if it's his to offer. Jesus knows this is scandalous, and not only does he not, you know, kind of, tamp things down. He actually turns up the heat. Look in, look in verse 4. 
He says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, again, knowing what they need to hear and what they're thinking, says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now, again, commentators take different positions on this, and maybe you have an answer to it. I don't think there's an actual answer. I think it's a rhetorical question. Jesus doesn't intend for us to answer the question. He's simply asserting his authority in both cases. So he says, all right, if you don't believe me, I will prove to you that I actually have the authority to forgive sins. Verse 6, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the paralyzed man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose up and he went home. That's just kind of amazing, right? Like, wow. What does that say about the issue of Jesus' authority to forgive sins? I mean, you don't, you don't have to, he doesn't have to connect the dots for us. The answer is right there in what he just did. He lets the man getting up be the answer to whether or not he really has authority, approval from God to say what he's just said. Look at how the story closes. Verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Everyone is standing around. What's their response? It, fear. Some of your translations may say they were awestruck, they were amazed, but it, it's, it's literally fear. It's just like the disciples' response to Jesus in the back of the boat, remember, from, from just a few passages ago. What kind of person is this? Who is this man? Who, is that? Who am I in the boat with here? Jesus has just claimed to be God himself and to have the authority and the power to forgive sin. That's why the crowds respond with fear. If Jesus is who he says he is because of what he's doing, then he's God here with us. He is the meeting place of heaven and earth this guy is the temple. This guy is the priest. This guy is God. And we don't have categories for that, and we're not really sure what to do with that other than to say, praise God. I mean, that's their, their fear turns into worship at least. That's a, a good response, better than the religious leaders. But it's not really going all the way, is it? it it's not really acknowledging who Jesus is fully because... Jesus is the God who uses his authority to heal and transform. And, and it, it, it blows people's minds and it overwhelms them because they have no categories for this kind of person. And, and as they start to think through the implications of what they've just seen and what we've just read, it, it changes. It, they have a conversion in their view of authority. Now I understand what good godly authority looks like. What kind of authority figure is Jesus? He, he doesn't fit in any category. He's not like any authority figure that you see on earth. He's not like parents or bosses or teachers or, or whatever. He has the authority to, to both name and deal with the deepest brokenness in the totality of our lives. That's part of why he heals this man's body too and talks about the forgiveness of sins. Jesus comes to heal and transform body, soul, mind, relationships, all of it. 
And, and what Jesus does with authority? Well, he doesn't stand off at a distance. He doesn't point fingers and condemn and judge and, and punish. He meets broken people right where they are and enters into the place of brokenness to address our deepest needs. And people who have this deep conviction that there is something wrong with me that I, I think Jesus can fix, that he can heal, those are the people who are actually liberated by Jesus' authority. Those are the people who are set free and actually come alive. The people who are willing to come to Jesus and say, I'm a mess and I cannot fix myself. I have no ability to fix what's wrong with me. And I need your help, Jesus. Those are the people that find Jesus' authority life-giving and transforming. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean to how we see Jesus? How we even see God as an authority figure? I think it transforms our view of authority. You know, when I had that run-in with the police, I was thankful to not get a ticket, but it didn't really lead me into a deep sense of gratitude and a, and a, and a you know, appreciation for who this guy was and what he had done, other than just, you know, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. But a real proper view of how that man used his authority would have led me to say, thank you. Thank you not just for not giving me a ticket, but thank you for actually pointing out that I had a taillight out and an expired registration because I was breaking the law. And in, not in a huge way. I mean, I wasn't veering off the road and endangered, but I was, in some sense, a danger to other people. And I was in the wrong. And it was actually kindness on that officer's part, not just to not give me a ticket, but to point out the wrong that I needed to fix and to not condemn me for it. And that's a picture of what Jesus' authority is like. It also reveals a Jesus whose authority brings words of comfort to us. Because I think, you know, maybe there's a temptation for us to have this perception of God that like he's, he's tightly wound and, he, and he's ready to fly off the handle at a moment's notice. And he's just looking, he's waiting for us to do something wrong so that he can pounce and, you know, condemn us and convict us and, and judge us and tell us how we've screwed up you know, like the, the, the parent or the boss or the teacher or, or whoever it is, the neighbor who never has anything good to say. They're just always pointing out everything that you've done wrong and it's all criticism and it's all negative and it's all failure and fault and you'll never measure up. And Jesus wants you to see that is not the God of the Bible. That's not who God is. I think it's this mindset that Jesus is addressing here and why he addresses that issue first. You need to know that I'm here to bring forgiveness and grace and kindness to you because that's God's heart for everyone that he's made and what he wants everyone to know through me, through Jesus. Jesus shows that God reaches out to meet this broken, needy man in all his flaws and all his imperfections and all his failures to pronounce that God is not angry, God's not disappointed, his posture is not condemnation. And some of us need to hear that this morning and believe that, that, that that's what Jesus, that's what God in the flesh is actually like. 
maybe some of us need to also hear this message that, you know, we're maybe not as liable to think, well, something's going wrong in my life, so I must have sinned and, and God's angry at me. But we may tend to think that if we're suffering, if God doesn't solve this problem, if God doesn't heal, if God doesn't deliver, if God doesn't answer my prayers in the way that I've been praying, then, then something is wrong. Maybe I haven't prayed enough. Maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I haven't prayed the right way. Maybe, maybe God doesn't really care. Maybe he's distant. And, and this is where we need to see Jesus stepping into this brokenness too to bring healing and transformation. When, when we wonder, you know, why does God let my, my wife, my child, my friend, this world go on like this with this pain and brokenness? And the Bible does not give us quick, easy answers to those questions. There simply isn't an easy question, an answer for it. It's a mystery why some are healed and some aren't and and why some brokenness endures and some of it gets healed. But we do know that Jesus has authority to heal both body and soul and, and he uses it to transform and he shows that he knows and that he cares. And this healing is an evidence and a reminder of that and it's also a reminder that we're not in heaven yet. Because when Jesus does return to bring his kingdom in his fullness, oh, that will be no more sorrow or sickness or suffering or death. And this is the down payment. This is the promise that that day is coming. And to believe in Jesus when we don't get the healing or the answer or the provision that we long for. But to trust that he really uses his authority to heal and to transform us and maybe even how we look at what we're going through. It speaks a word of comfort. It also speaks a word of challenge because this this kind of grace, this free offer of forgiveness, you know, could maybe tend to to let some of us look at Jesus' forgiveness here and think, oh, well, Jesus is just, you know, throwing out forgiveness. I, I guess it's no big deal how I live. I sin and Jesus forgives. It's a great arrangement, right? It, it's not a big deal that, you know, I just, I'm living in ways that dishonor God and hurt myself and hurt other people. And that's a dangerous mindset. And you do not want to live there. You do not want to go there. You do not want to play that game. God's goodness, his undeserved kindness, actually increases our accountability to respond to the generosity in front of us. Because what does it say about us in our hearts if we can look at the kindness and the sacrifice of God in Jesus and just say, oh, thanks, let's throw it on the pile. No big deal. I'll just, you know, take advantage of it. I'll just keep on hardening my heart and and turning away from the things that you want for me, Jesus and live in patterns that you want to free me from. Oh, don't, don't head down that path, and don't stay there if that's where you are. There, there might be some who need to hear these words of Jesus, child, don't be afraid as an invitation to come into the light and bring that brokenness and that sin and that mess and that, that thing that you just can't seem to get rid of or shake and bring it into the light and ask Jesus to heal and transform you. God's not angry with you. He's moving towards you in the person of Jesus because he loves you. And he's trying to heal you if you'll let him. And and so how this story speaks to you specifically, I I don't know. But if you've never come to a point of of confronting how 
messed up and broken you are, then I don't think you'll ever really see how beautiful Jesus is in this kind of a way. Try and hear this in in the right way in the sense in which I mean it. In one way, we could say this man almost had kind of a blessing in disguise because this brokenness in his body was obvious. It was unavoidable. It was clear that there was something wrong that needed to be healed. And for many, most of us, we don't have that obvious thing, which is actually more dangerous because the ugliness and the brokenness can just lurk beneath the surface and we can get good at sort of papering it over with niceness and politeness and, you know, just trying to be a good person. There comes a time when when we have to stop fooling ourselves about how messed up and broken and and desperate we really are by not telling ourselves, oh, you know, I'm doing pretty good. We have to come to a point where we stop distracting ourselves to point out the sins of other people. You know, like, why doesn't that policeman go arrest that guy who's tailgating over on the other side of the road? And start owning my own stuff and bringing it to Jesus because Jesus uses his authority to heal and transform. So I'm... I want us to just close as we head to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a few moments to invite us all to just take a moment of reflection, to ask God to help us hear what we need to hear from him, words of comfort, words of challenge, words of community and connection, words of stepping into and under his good authority. And let's just take some time to invite the Holy Spirit to come and Discern what Jesus is saying to us under his authority this morning. Let's, let's lead into our communion with just some silent reflection. Thank you, Jesus.